You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. This morning, we're looking together at chapter 1. You're going to find this on page 774 of the Pew Bible. (coughs) This morning, we're going to be reading together from chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3. Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. You might remember last time we discussed how Jonah's prophetic ministry was carried out under the reign of Jeroboam II. This was an ungodly and an idolatrous king who did not depart from the sins of his fathers. And his reign was long, 41 years. But he led the northern kingdom into wickedness. And what's amazing to me, and perhaps even to you, was that God was patient and long-suffering and even gracious to his disobedient people. Jonah witnessed this. He was well aware of just how gracious God is. And then the prophet receives this commission to preach in the great city of Nineveh. Without preparation, without explanation, without warning, God commanded him to preach. And it would entail a long, arduous journey, well over 500 miles. By foot, on camel, we're not told, a long journey either way. And warning the Gentiles and preaching repentance was totally contrary to Jewish expectation. After all, these were the enemies of Israel. They were vicious and they were brutal. And of all people, why would they be given an opportunity to escape judgment? It made no sense. Since God was gracious, Jonah knew that Nineveh would likely be spared. And it was so distasteful to him that he could not possibly think of doing it. So this Jewish prophet, I think, still had certain remnants of what we have come to call Pharisaism. You remember the Pharisee, don't you? He's the one who prayed, I, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. No, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. The man thanked God for his superiority over the sinners of the world. 
What he didn't realize was that he was just as undeserving as all the rest. He was a Pharisee who deemed himself righteous and faultless and meritorious. And with regard to other people, he was selfish and indifferent and haughty. And like the Pharisee, Jonah's sense of Jewish superiority, I think, got the best of him. And yet God commissioned him with this royal mandate, so it was a sacred duty. He had his marching orders, but he defied the Almighty and refused to obey the king's command. He didn't go to Nineveh. He went the opposite way. He fled to Tarshish. And scholars are not exactly sure where this ancient city was located, but some argue, and I think convincingly, that it was positioned somewhere in the south of Spain, which means this was a far-flung western seaport. And clearly, Jonah was trying to get as far away from home as possible. God had commanded Jonah to go east, and the prophet ended up going west. He who had been a mouthpiece of restoration in Israel refused to be one in Nineveh, heartless. So not only was his commission unique, but I think his response to it was equally so. I don't think a first-time listener to this story would have been prepared for what Jonah did. Jonah's refusal to obey God's command went against all Jewish expectation. You don't defy the Almighty. This man was a prophet, a mouthpiece of God, and he refuses to obey? Now, there were some prophets, let's be honest, who tried to excuse themselves because of their weakness. Moses protested that he was inarticulate. Okay. Jeremiah protested that he was far too young to be a prophet. Okay. These men shrank from God's summons, but neither one of them ran away. Jonah deserted. He went AWOL from God's army. He absconded. He boarded a ship for Tarshish while Nineveh was east. He goes west. Joppa was the chief seaport of Judea on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And we keep, we keep in mind that Tarshish was thousands of miles away. It would be a long journey. It was not a weekend getaway. It was a long extended breakaway. And the passage tells us that Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Better yet, what was Jonah thinking? Did he think that he could escape God's omniscience and omnipresence? Surely he knew that God is all-knowing, all-seeing, everywhere present. He must have been familiar with that Psalm of David in 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. Jonah knew that text. He was well acquainted with the doctrine. God is omnipresent. That is to say, he's everywhere at the same time. He knew that. So surely he didn't believe that he could flee from the presence of God. After all, in verse 9, he tells them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He knew the doctrine. 
Well, sometimes scripture uses the presence of the Lord in a technical sense. <clears throat> Let me give you three examples. <clears throat> Excuse me. Consider the Bible's account of Cain being banished for his crime. You remember Cain killing his brother Abel. Genesis 4 says, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. Same phrase. It's not meant to say that Cain somehow got away from the divine presence of God. He couldn't escape God's universal presence. It does mean, I think, that Cain was being driven away from the family hearth and altar. So he's not escaping the universal presence of God. He's driven away from the gracious presence of God. And by that, we mean the designated place where the people worship him. That's where they call upon the name of the Lord. That's where they find grace. Here. Cain is driven from the place where the saints draw near to God in a special way. There's the first example. Example number two. Consider the passage describing young Samuel's coming of age, the prophet. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah didn't go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I'll bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord. And here, of course, the tabernacle is described as the presence of the Lord. It was there that Israel was to meet with God in a very special way. Day after day, the sacrifices were offered, and once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. So Hannah is referring to Samuel's life and work as a priest in the tabernacle. And we're told in 1 Samuel 2, the young man Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle. Third example, Jeremiah, who was looking ahead to the messianic reign, he said this, At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. So here he is specifying that God's presence is in Jerusalem. That's where they met in the temple in a very special way. So all of this suggests that the presence of the Lord is another way of saying the place of public worship. It seems clear that Jonah was fleeing from the temple worship in Jerusalem because he knew that he couldn't escape the power and presence of Yahweh. But so disgruntled was Jonah that he wished to avoid any confrontations with the presence of Yahweh. Perhaps away from Jerusalem, he would disqualify himself from preaching. Just maybe, far away in Tarshish, the word of the Lord wouldn't come to me. He'd forget about me. And I think there are at least three main reasons put forth, put forth by some to explain his rebellion. First, some suggest that he was intimidated by the difficulties. On foot, by camel, 500 miles would be hard. And Nineveh was a great city, vast, populated by some 600,000 or more. It was well fortified, it was amply supplied, it was strategically positioned. And one might say it was the New York City of the ancient Assyrian Empire. And here was Jonah, alone, 
One prophet proclaiming this ominous message. And might he not expect a cool reception by the bulk of the Ninevites? Perhaps they'd be indifferent or intolerant or maybe even hostile. Jonah could be mocked or despised, laughed at, treated like a lunatic. And given the brutality of the Ninevite population, persecution was a very real possibility. But you see, prophets are usually courageous men of strong convictions. That's a prophet. You remember Jesus who described John as not a reed shaken by the wind or a man of soft clothing. John was a man who lived by himself in the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey. (laughs) And then Jesus says, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. Prophets were sturdy men. They were people of conviction and they had strength of character. It seems highly unlikely to me, therefore, that Jonah was fleeing because of difficulties. But the second argument put forth by some is that he was repulsed by the wickedness. Nineveh was known throughout the ancient world for its violence and its perversity. The prophet Nahum was enlisted later to announce God's judgment upon Nineveh again, and he was commissioned long after the generation of Jonah, and they repented. And I want you to listen how Nahum describes the wickedness of Nineveh. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. Nineveh was filled with pride. The pride of prosperity and power and prestige. And the city was permeated with unbridled lust and unrestrained violence. And perhaps, it is argued, Jonah was so repulsed by their evil that he was compelled to flee. You remember Lot? Peter says God rescued Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Lot was repulsed by the wickedness of Sodom. But King Jeroboam II was wicked, as were his fellow Israelites. And yet there is no indication that Jonah ever left his post in the northern kingdom because of their wickedness. Yes, it must have bothered him. But prophets were called to address evil. They're not just foretellers of future events. They're foretellers of rebellion. Covenant enforcement mediators, if you will. And God sent prophets to indict disobedient people and to threaten judgment. So I don't think Jonah was fleeing because of the degree of wickedness. But then there's a third argument. Others wonder if he fled because he was terrified of the dangers. Not intimidated by the difficulties, but terrified of the dangers involved. After all, he was to preach among a proud, powerful, brutal people. And they had little regard to life. They were notoriously callous and cruel. Would they think even twice of snuffing out this unknown Jewish prophet? (laughs) They might kill him for exposing their sins. 
People have gotten mad at me for preaching on sin. Why are you telling me what I'm doing? I didn't even know you were doing it. Let's face it, Jonah was human. Who wouldn't be a little frightened in Nineveh? But to draw this conclusion, I think we have to have a very low view of his religious character. It seems unlikely to me that a prophet would love his life and his safety more than his duty to God. They were divinely equipped with courage and they were called to dangerous ministries. Later, in the midst of that storm on the ship, he advised the sailors to throw him overboard. He knew that God had sent the tempest and his death would mean the sailors' survival. And so whatever else you say about him, those are not words of a coward. There is no indication in the text that Jonah's flight was motivated by fear. So none of those reasons seem plausible. But there's one that rings true. It seems to me that Jonah himself gives us the answer. Later in chapter 4, after the Ninevites have repented and God has extended mercy and the city is spared, our disobedient prophet said this, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Here's the real motive for shirking his duty. This is why he fled to Tarshish. The real reason had nothing to do with difficulties or wickedness or dangers. He didn't want the Ninevites to be spared by the mercy and grace of God. It was his sense of Jewish superiority that we considered earlier. After all, Israel's God's nation. The Jews were his peculiar people. Why on earth would God consider sparing their sworn enemies? Didn't he tell Abraham he'd curse those who cursed him? Didn't he tell Moses on the mountain that he would by no means clear the guilty? Didn't he tell David that his throne was special? Jonah was not only a genuine prophet of God, he was a true Jewish patriot. His people were God's people. No other nation on earth could claim that. And the thought of brutal, wicked Nineveh being spared offended him. He wanted justice. He wanted vindication. He wanted retribution for atrocities committed. But doesn't this bring us back to that striking passage recorded for us by Isaiah? Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord God, and your ways are not my ways, declares the Lord. You see, God calls wicked and unconverted people to repentance, and he promises to grant mercy. 
to those who commit great sins, who live in blatant sin, who neglect their moral duty. And this word of salvation is sent out to everyone and anyone who will listen. Why? That's the question. Why would the Holy One of Israel offer salvation even to the wicked? Because he's a God merciful and gracious. He's a sin-pardoning God. That's who he is. And that's not just what he does. That's who he is. His nature is gracious. John says God is love. And this is one reason why he can say that his thoughts are not our thoughts, because you and I, by nature, are vindictive creatures, aren't we? We crave justice for others. If someone wrongs us, we want our pound of flesh. He needs to be punished. And nowhere do I see this more often in my life than when I'm driving. Once again, it's on the road. If someone cuts me off, I want a police officer to pull him over and give him a ticket now. Yet if I make a mistake and cut somebody off and he gets angry with me, Oh, come on, give me a break. And clearly I've demonstrated my hypocrisy. I want justice for others, not for myself. And I think Jonah's struggle is along these lines. The hypocrisy of the elder brother. After all, Jonah was born sinful. He committed sins. He deserved punishment. And yet in the providence of God, he entered the world as a member of the chosen people. From birth, he was exposed to the true faith. He'd been called as a prophet. And these were immense privileges. And I might add undeserved privileges. There is no reason to think that he was a hypocrite. Jonah was a believer. He struggled like you and me. But even as a child of God, sincere as he was, he had trouble to see his own inconsistencies as we do. And what's more, he didn't fully understand or appreciate the grace and the mercy of God. But the Lord wasn't done with him, like he's not done with us. God would teach that broken vessel about his grace. So I think this morning as we take something away from this, First of all, let's acknowledge our propensity to have low thoughts about God. We were made in God's image, and yet we tend to conceive of him in our image. Psalm 50, verse 21, he says, you thought that I was one like yourself. Sometimes we see him as weak and forgetful as ourselves or as false to his word as we are to ours. Sometimes we see him as much a friend to sin as we ourselves are friends to sin. Sometimes we see him as petty and vindictive as we are ourselves. Jonah was a religious man. He was a spiritual man, a man of deep conviction. But like Job's friends, his view of God's character needed to be reformed. 
It's true, he realized that God was merciful, gracious, slow to anger. He understood the nature of God's goodness, but he didn't understand its extent. Jonah knew that God is good to Israel. He didn't know just how good God is to all. Let's not have small thoughts of God. His goodness is infinite. His goodness is eternal. Peter speaks of God's great mercy. Paul, of God's great love, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's what God did for us. On that, our hopes are built. We cling to the cross of Christ because the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Or as he says in Romans 1, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. No qualification, whoever you are. And scripture uses certain analogies, doesn't it, to help us better grasp this important truth. There are three analogies that we have for the grace of God. First, outer space is not as far above the earth as God's grace is above the guilt of sinners. Listen to this. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You and I sometimes want to put limits on God's grace, sometimes even for ourselves, don't we? How could God ever extend mercy and give grace to such a wretch as I? But the Lord says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. And it's a good thing. You cannot measure the height and you cannot fathom the depth of God's forgiving grace. That's analogy number one. Number two, as the sun dispels the darkness and breaks up the mist, so his grace scatters our guilt and our fear. Listen to this in Isaiah 44. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. I'm sure like me, you've seen mornings that are darkened by clouds and a dense fog. We have fog this morning. It's so thick and ominous. That is until the sun's light and heat brightens the landscape. The sun rises to scatter the clouds of heaven and the fog upon the earth. And it's the same with our sins and the guilt and shame that follow in their wake. God's grace rises like the sun to scatter them and to clear the fog from the human soul. That's number two. Number three, as the ocean depths far, are far beyond our reach, so is the place to which he casts our sins. Micah 7, he will again have compassion on us. He'll tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Some of you scientists can check my math here, but they say the Mariana Trench in the ocean is the deepest point, seven miles below. That's deep. That depth actually is more than the height of the stratosphere in some places. You can check if I'm right. 
You can plunge the highest mountain into that depth and you'll never see it again. And to that incredible depth is compared the forgiving grace of God. He casts the sins of his children, all the sins, into the depths of the sea. Thus, God's grace is higher than the heavens and brighter than the sun and deeper than the depths of the sea. And the Lord chose those analogies of his grace on purpose to encourage us. Because the guilt and shame of our sins are great, but his grace is greater. Satan works hard at seeking to discourage us with regard to our failures. There you go again. You've blown it. You're no Christian. You're a hypocrite. Yes, says the believer, I know. But in Christ, God has forgiven me and adopted me into his family. And he would never disown his child. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. I have his promise. And the devil says, oh, come on. Who are you kidding? You forfeited your salvation so many times. It's ridiculous. And the child of God says, my salvation doesn't depend on my performance. It depends upon the death and resurrection of Christ. And you see, the Lord gives these analogies to encourage us so that we can believe and persevere. He's not encouraging us to sin, but he's encouraging us to embrace his promise in Christ. So let's have nothing to do with low thoughts of God and his mercy. It honors him when we take him at his word and trust in Christ. And let's pray for the spirit to work in our hearts a sincere love for others. Jonah had to learn this. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Only the Christian, by the power of the Spirit, can fulfill that spiritual obligation. And that's the way that the world can see the true greatness of the Christian faith. May God enable us to do that, all of us. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess too often having low thoughts of you and your infinite love, grace, and mercy. Sometimes we're greedy with it. Sometimes, like Jonah, we want justice for others when you've been so merciful with us. We pray that you'll help us to rejoice in your grace, to love others in the way that Jesus does, and to be vehicles, vessels, of your mercy and grace to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.